This is Adrian Miller, the Soul Food Scholar, and definitely check out the Eat Kentucky podcast where I'm going to drop knowledge like hot biscuits. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar, is a Denver, Colorado-based James Beard award-winning author and food historian, as well as a certified barbecue judge and former White House advisor to President Bill Clinton. In this episode, Adrian and I talk about Lexington, Kentucky chef Dolly Johnson, an African-American White House chef for two presidents and who was discovered by young Theodore Roosevelt. Much about Dolly remains cloaked in mystery, but she was in high demand at the highest halls of power, but she left all of that to return to her home in Kentucky. Adrian writes about her in his book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, He and I discuss White House chefs, as well as the idea of soul food, the subject of his James Beard award-winning book. Plus, Adrian and I discuss barbecue and his time in Bill Clinton's White House. Meanwhile, please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. Adrian Miller, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I guess you're you're at home catching up on your Netflix backlog <laughs> like everybody. Yeah, that's right. Stay at home, watch TV. <laughs> that's been my life. Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of an unusual situation, obviously. Uh, and I'm trying to trying to find great folks to talk to uh, remotely uh, who have some great Kentucky content. And I know you're somebody who does as well as as non Kentucky content. You've you've done a lot of interesting things. Yeah, thanks. It's been a good ride. You're one of those guys, of course, I've I've followed you on social media for a few years, and you and I have interacted some uh, via email and such, but you're somebody who seems to have one of those perfect jobs where I constantly see you in different places around the country posting food that I want to eat. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been really fortunate to, yeah, to check out different food scenes across the country, all in the sake of, uh, for the sake of what I call research, quote unquote. That's that's right. Yeah. Well, it's you know somebody's got to do it, and uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate your willingness to sacrifice on our behalf. Yes, for the greater good. <laughs> so, uh, have you have you been in Kentucky many times? If do you have any Kentucky ties? I've only been to Kentucky uh, twice, and both times to Louisville. Uh, so I have not okay. explored much of your great state. Um, I really well. Of course, this show is based in Lexington. We need to get you. We need to get you down here in Lexington. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, for um, the two books that I've had, I just haven't had a huge enough of an advance to really explore the country as much as I wanted. So I had to kind of pick and choose. 
Oh, sure. No doubt. Now, yeah. you're based in Denver, is that correct? Yeah, I'm based in Denver, Colorado. This is where I was born and raised, so that immediately okay. loses me most street cred on the subject of soul food and barbecue. <laughs> uh, well, I, I can see that, yeah. But uh, from from all accounts, it's a beautiful place. I've actually never been to Denver. Ah, do you feel like something's missing in your life? Uh, well, I mean, I would love to go. I've, I, I've, you know, I've only heard great things about it. All right. Well, we have to get you out here too. I'll, I'll definitely uh, show you a good time. Well, we need to do some sort of, uh, maybe we can do some sort of sister city uh, uh, food swap. You can come here and, uh, and I'll, I'll give you the, the, the tour of Lexington and then, uh, then I can go to Denver and you can, you can show me the food scene there. Word, man. That sounds like a good exchange. I like that. Uh, well, we'll, we'll have to set that up when, when we can finally be allowed out of our house <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and actually, uh, and actually, uh, visit restaurants and, and hopefully they'll be open again. I want to talk to you a little bit about, about the current, uh, situation as it pertains to restaurants, particularly minority owned restaurants, because I know that's going to be a real struggle for a lot of folks. Yeah, Absolutely. So you've written two books so far, and and I believe you've got one in the back burner. Yes, yeah. So the you did uh, you did Soul Food, which won a James Beard Award, mm-hmm. and then you also uh, did a book on White House chefs called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Yes, and I I particularly wanted to to talk to you about one of the chefs. Uh, that has a lot of of Kentucky relevance in the president's kitchen cabinet, and that would be Dolly Johnson. Yeah, so um, Laura Dolly Johnson um, was one of my favorite personalities that I discovered in my research. And um, when I when I do uh, speaking engagements around the country, you know, out of the 150 African Americans that I have identified who have cooked in the White House, she's one of the few stories that I tell. Because I think she's just a fascinating figure, an example of a a, a free woman, um, independent, who actually really didn't want to work at the White House, but gets talked into it. And uh, her cooking is just so well-renowned that there are national headlines when Benjamin Harrison taps her to be the White House cook. And um, to, to have that happen for a black woman in the, 18, the late 1880s uh, is just remarkable. It really is an incredible story. Now, just for those who may be listening and not familiar with the book, this this book traces uh, African American uh, cooks and I guess kitchen staff who were in the White House from George Washington through the Obama administration. Is that correct? That's correct, because uh, that's what I had to cut off my research. Uh, so yeah, from from the very beginning of the presidential kitchen all the way through White House history. Um, every president has had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity, either in the basement kitchen, which is the main kitchen, uh, when they traveled by train or airplane or even the presidential yacht, or often when they would go someplace and stay for a while. Um, usually there was an African-American cook in the mix. That's really a, a pretty incredible genealogy that you that you found, I guess, kind of hiding in plain sight there. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and what was fascinating is um, the extent to which these cooks were discussed in their time. Now, not everybody was discussed. I mean, typically they would just remark that there was a, an African-American in the kitchen using the language of the day. But, um, you know, there, there are many instances where these uh, cooks actually were indicated by full name. 
and uh, their culinary exploits were touted. And again, that that's kind of unusual for the time period. Sure, I, I I can imagine it was. So, looking at Dolly Johnson, she was kind of plucked out of Kentucky, I guess, and brought to the White House. Uh, now, was she was she born into slavery? That I don't know much about her early life. I know that she was biracial, um, mm-hmm. and so, but I don't know if she was actually uh, born enslaved or not. I just haven't been able to find that deep. Um, of a biography of her. Right. But of course, then she was apparently a, a cook of of quite great renown here in Kentucky then in the, in the uh, post-war period. Yeah. So she was working for a guy named uh, Colonel John Mason Brown. And the way she quote unquote got discovered is a young Theodore Roosevelt uh, was dining at his home and had a meal prepared by Dolly Johnson and uh, was so just bowled over by that meal that he contacted Benjamin Harrison and uh, said, hey, you really need to have this woman as your cook. Now, there was only one problem. The White House already had a, a cook uh, named Madame Pelunard, who was uh, cooking previously for the British delegation. And so uh, Madame Pelunard was not pleased with all the national headlines about Dolly Johnson getting hired. And so she actually filed a lawsuit against Benjamin Harrison. So this is the first known instance of a White House employee suing the president. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, the 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 previous cook does not sound like she was from Kentucky. <laughs> no. <laughs> French woman cooking for the British uh, embassy, basically. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, even today, there there seems to be that theme of sort of, I guess we'll say, fancy French cooking and fancy French chefs in the White House mm-hmm. versus kind of home cook, uh, home cooked meal type uh, type cuisine uh, for for presidents. Is that something that you found existed has existed for two hundred years? Oh, absolutely. I, I I call it an ongoing rivalry, an ongoing culinary rivalry. Um, and it, it was interesting because um, you see a lot of presidents loving French cooking, but um, some were very uh, ostentatious about it. Others downplayed it because the, the American public has really had a suspicion of somebody who loves foreign food rather than their home cooking. Uh, and so savvy presidents have understood that if they played up the fact that they loved home cooking, whatever, wherever they grew up, that actually uh, gave them. Uh, some more popular appeal. You know, people just thought, oh, okay, he's one of us, you know? Sure. Yeah. Right. So you, so and you that, see that rivalry. You, yeah. You always see president, the presidential candidates going to eating fair food and that kind of thing on the, on the campaign trail. <laughs> exactly. Cause it shows the common touch, but you know, remarkably a lot of presidents uh, throughout our history have not really played that card. And I, I just really don't know why. Cause uh, some, some have used it to great effect. Well, certainly, uh, your your former employer, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Bill Clinton was kind of a master at that, at exploiting that kind of common touch. Oh yeah, especially with the fast food. Right, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of a a, a meme that exists even today. Is Bill Clinton <laughs> going to McDonald's, right? Um, but uh, so so tell me a little bit about the background of Dolly Johnson. Why why is she or or what was her career? I guess before 
she was she was discovered uh, by Theodore Roosevelt or or was was brought to Washington. Yeah, so it, it appears that she was kind of an independent caterer, um, and I'm not sure how she got into John Mason Brown's orbit, uh, but eventually was hired as a private cook for him. But at the time that the White House approached her to be their cook, she really wanted to go back to the catering life um, and be a restaurateur. Uh, so, you know, she was very business minded. And I, I was always impressed by that. Um, in fact, uh, she when she gets to the White House, she's only there for a short period of time because her daughter gets uh, grows ill. So she returns to Lexington to care for her daughter. Um, but her cooking was so impressive that when Grover Cleveland wins, you know, four years later, he actually recruits her to come work in the White House kitchen. Yeah, that was something that really struck me in the book was that uh, that she was somebody that another president went out to bring back yeah. to the White House. That seemed that seemed extraordinary to me. That is, that is, because I, I often when I tell people when I talk about uh, kind of cooks in presidential history is really when there's a change of administration, the only one who really kind of sweats it is the head cook, um, especially during the 18th and 19th centuries, because typically the White House cook was somebody who happened to be cooking for that person who became president uh, in private life. And so typically a president would just bring that cook with them to the White House. It's really only recently, like within the last 50 years, that we've had the executive cook or the head cook um, really go from administration to administration. They sort of professionalize the role, I guess. Yes, yes. So as as White House cook or chef, what would have been her responsibilities? I mean, was she just simply the person who was preparing the meals? Was she operating in an administrative role? How, how would that have worked? So during the time that she was working in the White House, um, they had something they called the White House uh, steward. And so the steward was actually a person who was in charge of all the residents' operations. And so the steward was the one who would actually do the shopping, do a lot of the meal planning, uh, and consult with the, the first lady. So uh, typically the White House chef really was just in charge of uh, executing the meals, um, given what the menu was. Now, of course, uh, after the cook builds a rapport with the first family, I'm sure there's more autonomy granted. But really, the uh, the steward was the one in charge of most of the things we think of as a chef doing today. Um, so she probably would have just received things from the White House garden. There was a White House garden at the time. Um, and she would have gotten the groceries from the White House steward, and then she would be in charge of making the meals. Uh, back then, um, pretty much the White House chef was doing all of the cooking, um, except for the staff. There typically was an assistant chef who would cook for the staff, while the uh, the head cook cooked for the family and, and anybody the uh, first family was entertaining at the White House. Okay, so they so they actually had a chef or a cook for the staff themselves, but but she would have been the person putting the food in front of the president, right? Now, the, the only thing that she probably would not have done is if they had a state dinner, there was a tendency for the president to pick a, a well-known French chef, maybe from Philadelphia or New York, to execute that meal. So you see kind of a bifurcation of White House cooking, where the, the White House uh, cook is in charge of really just the daily meals at the White House, 
but for special occasions, then uh, a French chef might be tapped. I see. So they would bring somebody in just sort of on a, a one-off basis. Right. It really isn't until the Taft administration that all of that gets uh, basically recombined um, and so that the White House cook is doing everything. Now, you have in uh, in your book a uh, – you have a menu uh, would, uh, that dates from – the time period that that Dolly Johnson would have been there is that correct? Yeah, yeah. For the Christmas, the Christmas dinner menu. Yeah, and um, I was really excited to find that because you know, um, I, I, typically, you know, because we're just not they weren't a, such a foodie society as uh, we are now. Um, I couldn't find anything from Dolly Johnson on Instagram. So I was going to say, <laughs> did she not have a, a wide a wide following on Instagram? For she her? did it, man. She needed to up her game, you know. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I was really uh, just I was really pleased just to find anything that would have indicated what she might have cooked in that time. And the other thing that's a challenge is um, typically the first lady got credit for all the food that was in um, that was produced in the White House. So sometimes the cook wasn't even going to get a shout out. Oh, I see. So the so it was just it was sort of uh, the the first lady was the person sort of who ceremonially in charge of food right i guess right because typically they would talk about the first lady and we see this in a lot of southern uh, um cookbooks as well where you have an african-american cook who's actually executing the dish but it was the first uh lady or the mistress of the house who would get credit as the as the hostess um i see yeah. that's interesting yeah but this meal do you mind if i quickly run through the meal i mean oh please oh, yeah. yes go right ahead so uh starts out with blue point oysters on the half shell uh and then soup uh, consomme royale and then the entree was bouche a la reine and then uh roast beef turkey cranberry jelly potatoes duchesse stewed celery terrapin a la maryland and terrapin is a turtle uh, lettuce salad, plain dressing, and then as sweets, they would have mince pie and American plum, plum pudding. And then that wasn't even, then they also had dessert, which was tutti frutti ice cream, lady fingers, macaroons, and Carlsbad wafers, uh, fruits, apples, Florida oranges, bananas, grapes, pears, and then black coffee. So it sounds like a gargantuan meal, but uh, during the 19th century, the way to really think of these meals is as a series of small plates. I see. Uh, yeah, not not really huge portions because you see some of these menus, you're like, dang, how did they eat all that stuff? Right, right. Yeah, it would be impossible for them to function for days after after all of that. I would think. Yeah, exactly. I I will say that I I did learn that they had tutti frutti ice cream at the time. I had no idea. I know. I just thought it was something <laughs> that appeared on playgrounds in the '60s, '70s. <laughs> That's right. But it's it's really got got a presidential pedigree. Yep. So, in, I mean, in that instance, I mean, something like the ice cream, she was probably making that in-house, I would think. Yeah, or they might have had somebody, they might have outsourced that, um, because back then, ice cream was really a specialized skill, um, and there were really two kinds of ice cream. So you had the custard-based ice cream, which is more familiar to us today, but and that was, uh, at that time, that was called New York-style ice cream, um, but hmm. you also had a basically taking heavy cream and fruit and mixing it together and freezing it. And that was called Philadelphia style ice cream. Huh, interesting. Yeah. So um, it really depends on what kind of ice cream they were serving at that time. And that could have been outsourced. 
But that sounds like a, a, a very impressive meal. And, and so she would have been responsible for putting that together. Yeah. But at the, at, at the same time, you know, we talk about home cooking. I'll say, you know, we, we don't have a lot of that at my home. So that, that was a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, advanced, I guess I'll say, home cooked, quote unquote, meal that she's, that she's putting there. She's cooking on a very high level. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so we, we really just can't overlook the artistry of these cooks in their time. And, um, and she would have been cooking on a huge coal range that was installed in the 1850s. Um, and uh, that, that range has its own kind of interesting story. But before the range was installed, the White House cooks were essentially doing hearth cooking. So they were cooking in a large fireplace. And um, I, yeah. I would just think logistically, it would be so hard to cook what we would consider a fancy meal in in those kind of circumstances yeah because you're you know you're dealing with so much at that time um and operating this huge cast iron coal range and trying to make make sure the temperatures are right with everything keeping tabs on that i mean you know we heard that meal so there was a lot of intricacy going on there so so dolly johnson goes to the white house leaves after what less than a year really in the in the first administration yes. that, she, that she served in and then and comes to lexington comes back to lexington yes and then when the next president comes in is that president cleveland yes grover cleveland uh, yeah when when grover cleveland comes in he brings her back from lexington yeah. and recruits her back to the white house so was she was she there for a longer period uh under uh, under uh, President Cleveland? Yeah, so with Cleveland, she's there for pretty much all of his presidency. And remember, Grover Cleveland is the only president we've had that had split terms. So essentially, right. he was before Benjamin Harrison, and then he got uh, elected again uh, afterwards. So yeah, she's she's there the whole time. And um, after the presidency, uh, she goes back to Lexington and ends up running a restaurant. Right. It, it looked like from from uh, the history that you were able to piece together that she had several different establishments uh, in Lexington that she opened uh, and then was hired also by hotels to come in uh, and and work for them, run their kitchens. Yeah. Yeah. So she I mean, she was highly sought after. And, you know, the one thing that I've always wondered is, you know, um, how she got that reputation because a lot of the newspaper articles about her would, would talk about her having a national reputation. And I don't, I don't know if that came from the white house stint, um, but my sense was, is that she had that reputation even earlier than her white house well, did. I, yeah. There are a lot of, of course you would, you would have seen a lot of these even more clearly uh, than I would from reading your book, but uh, she apparently was, was quite wealthy or, relatively so, uh, before she went to the White House, because she had sort of retired, uh, from my understanding, sort of semi-retired at least, before she was called to the White House, or at least after her first stint. Yeah. And that that is just, again, that is just amazing for a woman in the, you know, late 1880s, early 19, 1890s to be in that position, to have that status. She must have been, she must have been really an extraordinary businesswoman as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have no doubt of that. Um, and I and I think uh, to the in my book, I have a newspaper advertisement by her uh, in the Lexington Morning Herald, and this is after she opens her first restaurant uh, in 1905. 
Um, and it says, Dolly, the famous White House cook, has opened a dining room at 152 South Limestone Street. I don't know if Limestone Street still exists in Lexington. It, it does. In fact, uh, this my end of the recording is, is being done very close to Limestone Street, actually. Okay. Uh, Limestone uh, becomes... is. Here, people would know it, Nicholasville Road, and then it becomes limestone as it runs through UK's campus, uh, University of Kentucky's campus. Then it runs into downtown. And uh, I, I tried to run this address to see if it would pull up. It's 152 South Limestone. That that particular address does not seem to exist, but it would have been close to uh, what is now the new uh, town center, center point development um, and, uh, there's a, there's a nice steakhouse that in fact, that's just opened fairly close to where that would be. So it, it, you know, limestone is a, is a pretty major road here, uh, in the downtown area of Lexington. Okay. All right. So, you know, one thing I, I didn't, I'm sorry, I just didn't get a chance to research this. I wonder if back then that would have been in the African-American part of town. Because if that's not, if she's in kind of a central business di- district, that again is a testament to her, her well, stature. That that first block, that 152 block, um, I, I don't know what that, that particular area would be, but it's right off of downtown. I mean, that's, that's essentially within what would be considered downtown. Again, I don't know what that area would have been 100 years ago, but she would have been at least very close to uh, things like the courthouse and and so forth. So that's you know the 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 courthouse that existed at that time is still is still here. They've recently renovated. It's no longer an active courthouse, but you know you could easily walk a few blocks down and and would be at at that restaurant. Wow, that's just amazing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So she would have been she would have been very close to the 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 main hub of activity. Uh, I don't know that specific area, but she would have been easily accessible to anybody downtown. Wow, amazing! And obviously, she had she had the reputation uh, to to draw to bring people in. I also saw she I think she opened another restaurant actually on Main Street too. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and the cool thing about this is that the local press was reporting on her when she was opening up restaurants. So they were very much interested in what she was doing and wanted the broader public to know that as well. Um, right. She was obviously you bring a White House chef into town. That's I mean, that's a, a pretty big deal for a place like Lexington. <laughs> yeah. And she even called the place the White House Cafe. It was on uh, right. two, well, 215 East Main Street. <laughs> well, at, she she was a smart businesswoman. <laughs> so so you're, you, you want to leverage that White House connection. Yes, absolutely. And so. Uh, she eventually, I guess, ages out, sort of fades from view uh, in in Lexington. Yeah, she does. Um, And uh, yeah, it's just kind of a, given all the press that she had, it was kind of a sharp drop off, in my opinion. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that happened. Now, you know, the other thing is I haven't had a chance to really get into local sources. Sure. Um, So there, there may be more to learn about her life. Um, But the last thing we really hear about her on a large scale is when she cooks the uh, wedding cake for Alice Longworth Roosevelt or Roosevelt Longworth um, when she gets married 
uh, and that this is one of Theodore Roosevelt's daughters. Oh wow, that's incredible! Yeah. So that that goes back to the earlier Roosevelt connection uh, from what twenty thirty years earlier. Yeah, it's a nice kind of circle of life. So really, three different presidents tapped her for um, for their use, whether officially as White House chef or or for special events. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yep. That uh, I mean, is there is there anybody equivalent to that in in the in the history that you uh, that you surveyed in your book? Uh, yes. So there are some African Americans now. Um, one one woman I'm thinking about, um, she worked from basically her name was Esserline Dewberry, and she works all the way from President Truman to Ronald Reagan. Now she was an assistant chef, uh, a cook at the White House, so she wasn't the main cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a, a European guy named Henri Haller, he cooked from uh, Lyndon Johnson all the way to Reagan. Okay. Uh, yeah. But at, but at that point, you've really got more of the in-house professionalized roles. Where with Dolly Johnson, you have somebody who presidents are deliberately reaching out to to bring into the White House or bring into their events. She's not somebody who's just there and will keep her around. Sort of oh yeah, situation. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in that sense, yes. Uh, yeah. So in, in that sense, I haven't I really haven't known of anybody to have that kind of uh, stretch except for an outside caterer. So um, there are a couple of figures here and there that just get tapped by presidents because they, you know, they're just well renowned, world renowned as a caterer. Well, I will say, speaking from a, a Kentucky culinary standpoint, she's really somebody here locally who's not known, who really ought to be very widely known. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I don't know if you could find anybody with a, with a greater, uh, culinary stature than that from certainly that, that 50 years or so after the civil war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her time, it's I, really I mean, impressive. yeah. And her time, that's really, she's really the one. One of the great ways to eat Kentucky is to live in Kentucky. I can help you with that. I'm a realtor in the Lexington, Kentucky area with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, please contact me at alancornett at kw.com or eatkentucky at gmail.com. Now let's talk more about Kentucky, its food, and its culture. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, and talk some about your, your first book, uh, which was on soul food, and and that was the book you won the uh, the James Beard Award for. Yeah, so um, yeah, that book is um, I, I really love that book, and the reason I wrote that book is uh, the short answer is unemployment. Uh, basically, <laughs> I had just come out of the Clinton administration, and the job market was really slow because uh, at that point in my life, in the uh, early two thousands, uh, my goal was to be the senator from Colorado at some point. And I was going to move back to Colorado and start my political career, but the job market was slow. So I was staying in D.C. a lot longer than I had anticipated. And I was watching a lot of daytime television. And I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I got a book uh, written by the late John Edgerton. He was alive at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, called yeah, Southern who Food. also has who also has strong Kentucky ties. But oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, so his book Southern F- Food at Home on the Road in History. Um, I picked that up, and early in that book, he writes that the tribute to African American achievement in cookery has yet to be written. So I just thought that was really interesting, and I emailed him because when I read the book, it was about ten years old. And I had just figured mm-hmm. somebody had written that story, and uh, you know we had a little back big of a big uh, a little bit of an exchange by email, and he said, you know, nobody's really taken on the full story, so with no qualifications at all, like except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's what started the journey. And so you just you just took the dive in. Yeah, yeah. So so is it better to be a culinary historian or a United States senator? <laughs> Uh, I, th- I think I'm having a lot more fun. Being a <laughs> well, I, I feel like you're, you're still pretty young. I mean, you're, I think you and I are, are close to the same age. So I, I, I feel like you've still got time to make that political <laughs> career happen. You know, you might be right. You might be right. You know, you could do, uh, you know, uh, uh, ribs in every, in every pot or something like that. Oh man, that platform, I would sail to election. I think, <laughs> I, th- I think so. I'll, uh, if you need somebody to come out and, and help help with you uh distribute those ribs just let me know all right <laughs> fair enough <laughs> we can work that out so so when you started exploring soul food as opposed to i guess we would say the more general category of southern food what did you find or the similarities what did you find are the differences because i think for a lot of people, and I'll throw throw myself, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, there's a lot of gray area on what's soul food and what's what I would just call just Southern food. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So when people ask me what's the difference between Southern food and soul food, my stock short answer is uh, soul food tastes better. <laughs> but if people want to dig a little deeper, you know, there's a lot of shared ingredients and techniques. Um, I think the soul food, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm going to parse this a little bit later because the distinctions are collapsing. Um, but for the most part, soul food tends to be more intensely spiced uh, and seasoned. Um, it tended to rely more on variety meats than mm-hmm. other soul food uh, than southern dishes. Um, and um, I think it's just a matter of just how it was prepared. I think those are the home, the big differences. So uh, let me give you an example: fried chicken. So fried chicken is definitely shared by soul food and southern food, but it sure and and Kentucky is we consider ourselves a, a, an epicenter of of fried chicken cooking. Oh yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> so it makes complete sense to me that an African American restaurant in Nashville would come up with an insanely spicy version of fried chicken which we now call Nashville right. hot chicken. And, and which is very good. Yes. But there's only so, so high I can go on the level meter. Exactly. <laughs> so to me, that's like a great example okay. uh, of, of yeah. kind of the difference. Um, I, so I think of Southern food as kind of the bland, blander regional um, mother cuisine. And soul food is really an uh, offshoot of that. Because I actually argue in my book that really soul food is the, the food of the migrants who left the South and settled in other parts of the country. So I recast soul food as an immigrant food because when you're in the South, the the differences between what blacks and whites eat 
is very blurred, almost to have no distinction. And sure. so in the, to me in the South, it's really more about class and place than race when it comes to food. So do you find, that's an interesting, it's an interesting observation. Do you find that in, or I guess uh, not just the North, but I guess North and West or just outside of the South, that soul food is a more isolated food uh, within African-American establishments and homes more so than it would be in the South. Oh yeah, absolutely. So soul food is, uh, is more thought of as a culinary oddity. Um, you know, when you talk to people outside the South and to some extent this exists for Southern food, believe it or not, although I think that's changed the last 10 years because of Southern foods popularity, but, um, it was not uncommon for me to talk to somebody and, and they would just say, you know, I've heard of Southern food, but I, I can't say that I really know what it is. And it was even more so with soul food. Sure. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it's been a few years since, since your book came out. Do you think that soul food has grown in, I guess, the public consciousness since then, as you mentioned, Southern food certainly has. Yeah. Well, I think so. And um, I think, and in, in thanks to um, not only the efforts of my book, but other African-Americans who are now more uh, writing more about our food, I think it has, uh, you know, permeated the national consciousness a little bit more. But no, I think it lags way behind so, uh, Southern food. But you, you really did kind of start a... Uh... I guess a, a a growing interest in investigating soul food, though there have been a number of books that have come out uh, in recent years about it. Yeah, and I think it's wonderful because there's so much to be explored, and uh, I'm glad that more people are writing about it. And one of my laments when I first started my book is as I went around the country, you know, and so, there was of course soul food restaurants, but in kind of more finer fine dining concepts. You know, I, I just found these African-American chefs were not really celebrating their food. And I, I asked about that. And I think it was because of the stigma that's placed upon soul food as being poverty food or slave food. And um, so one of the things that I'm really happy to see now is more African-American chefs uh, celebrating their their heritage. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really cool thing. And I, I think even on top of that is the number of chefs who are now trying to connect uh African-American or food, you know, the food of um, African descent people in the Americas back to West Africa. I think sure. showing those connections is really exciting. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to see what comes of that. Well, you know, you really can't have, if we're just speaking broadly of Southern food, Southern food doesn't exist without that uh, African influx. It's just the ingredients and, and the cooking style it it wouldn't it wouldn't exist as we know it without those without those uh, infusions. Yeah, absolutely. But the weird thing is, is that I think that point is lost on the broader public. Um, I think uh, like your typical person, especially outside the South, when they think of Southern food, I don't think necessarily that the African American influence comes to mind. And I get into that in my book, and I think part of that is due to the conscious separation of soul food from Southern food in the nineteen sixties. Um, because before that, it was just called Southern food um, or down-home cooking or whatever, but it was understood as a shared cuisine. But, right. um, you know, after that 
that conscious separation in the 60s, I, I argue that soul becomes black and Southern becomes white. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still living with that, the legacy of that separation today. And so, you know, one of the vibrant discussions going on in some circles is this idea of culinary justice, which is a, a reintegration of the African influence um, when talking about Southern food. So what what would you, I mean, you touched on this a moment ago, but what are some features of soul food other than, say, spice level maybe that that we would look to that might differentiate it? Yeah, so I, I think the, uh, the, the emphasis on variety meats, so ham hocks, chitlins, oxtails, um, you know, those, those are things you really only found in soul food joints for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, that has changed because fine dining chefs have discovered whole animal cooking. And so they're taking these very same ingredients and putting them in a different context and charging you a lot of money. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, pig's feet are now called trotters. In fine dining. Oh, I had. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that term. And you that's pay twenty five dollars for them. If you go to a soul food oh, joint, nice. they're going to be like eight bucks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I think uh, that um, kind of a Caribbean influence, although that's very regional. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you see, some Caribbean. In fact, uh, one of the things that surprises me is that there actually should be a lot stronger Caribbean influence in soul food, uh, but you don't see it all over the country. Um, so the, the, I, but I really think that variety meets, um, and also the blend, the blurring of savory and sweet. So, uh, cornbread, you know, one big fighting, uh, point of contention is whether or not to put sugar in cornbread. Right. And a lot of white Southerners would say, well, if you put sugar in cornbread, you should call it cake. Right. I, I will admit that, uh, of course I, I'm from. My my food heritage is the Appalachian version of Southern food. That that my uh, my father, who was always the the maker of cornbread at, at home, was was and is very vocally opposed to any sugar in cornbread. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if you look at almost every cornbread recipe that I've seen from an African American, and I'm not going to say hundred percent because I've seen some no sugar corn uh, cornbread recipes, but they've always had some amount of sugar. Interesting. And so that's that's a hallmark of black cooking as well. But you see, uh, if you look at old recipes, you will see molasses and other things show up in vegetable preparations. So, uh, you know, it's just the, you, you just this blurring of the lines between savory and sweet, I right. think, are another um, hallmark of soul food cooking. Now, I know uh, for me, I've, I've certainly seen things like uh, brown sugar being used in say beans for example mm-hmm. or something you know uh, green beans so so I, you know there's some of that but i think um, i think you're probably right as far as uh, with appalachian cooking you can certainly see a lot a, a big difference between spice levels because there's very often almost no spice in the kind of food that i was raised it uh, raised with <laughs> gotcha yep uh, a lot, you know, you get your, your kind of basic uh, uh, soup beans and cornbread uh, kind of approach, which is really good. It's not in any way to, to criticize it, but it's certainly a different mindset, I think. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, for most of our nation's history, uh, highly spiced food was considered low class. 
Interesting. So yeah, uh, yeah and that that lends to the kind of the European classical European sensibility of balance, subtlety. Uh, you know, those things were, val- were valued in food preparation more than heavy seasoning. Yeah, so that we're getting back to that to that old dichotomy of, I guess, French cooking versus home cooking. Exactly. Yep. And so, as as Southern food has become so popular, and um, it has different iterations have broken off of it. You know, you're starting to get finer dining interpretations of Southern food, mm-hmm. uh, which are bending themselves more back to the French kind of French sensibility. So, so I guess riffing off of that is your newest project dealing with barbecue. Yeah, so that that uh, book is tentatively titled Black Smoke, African-American Adventures in Barbecue. I'm very t- proud of that title. Yeah, it's a very good one. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and the, the, the main point of the book is if you look at food media about barbecue today, you wouldn't even know that black people barbecue. Um, and to me, that's just messed up. And the reason now, let me just tell you before, say like 2002, my deepest thoughts about barbecue were, Hey, this is really good. Um, and it was not something that I ate regularly. It was really special occasion food. Um, but then I uh, joined the Southern Foodways Alliance and that year, the theme was on barbecue. And so for the first time I went to a symposium on barbecue and barbecue was put kind of in an academic and social context. So discussions of gender, race, history, um, sociology, all I just never thought about barbecue that way. Uh, and then fast forward, I became a certified barbecue judge with the Kansas City Barbecue Society. And let me just tell you, that is the best conversation starter I've ever had. Oh, I, I bet. Yeah, people go like, oh, you worked in the White House? Okay, but, but you're a barbecue judge? That's right. (laughs) Um, So I just started paying attention to food media, and it was like television show and magazine article, one after another after another. She had very few black people profiled. And I just just thought that was messed up. And so this book is to really show that if you're going to really talk about barbecue in the United States, African Americans have to be part of that narrative. And the book just traces the development of barbecue to show that for much of our nation's history, African-American cooks and barbecue were heavily linked together. In fact, in newspaper um, articles in the 1800s, late 1800s, would have barbecue recipes and black cooks were part of the recipe. Like you had to have a quote unquote colored man make the sauce or prepare the meat. Oh, so that was actually part of the recipe instructions. Yep. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's, That's incredible. Yeah, that just shows you how much of a link there was. So to get to this point now where you don't really even celebrate African-American uh, barbecuers is just weird to me. Now, I, I have spent time in my years away from Kentucky. Uh, I, I lived for a few years in Kansas City, ah. obviously a, a, a barbecue capital. Uh, and in Kansas City... I feel like there, there is certainly a mental link between African-Americans and barbecue. Yep. Uh, and also I lived in the Birmingham area, uh, Birmingham, Alabama area for a few years. And what I think of there is Dreamland Barbecue, mm-hmm. which, of course, again, a very strong connection between African-American uh, pitmasters and, and barbecue. But 
But then I guess if I think about sort of a competition barbecue, it, it really, it, it, you don't see that same, that same connection. No. And I, and I talk about this in my book because, um, the food media changes when you get to the local, local level, um, especially in uh, towns with a strong history of black barbecue cooks like Kansas City, like Memphis, a place like Cleveland. Um, so it's really when you start getting, when the, when the um, media kind of view gets high, at a higher and higher level that you start to see African-American cooks fade. And in terms of the, bar- yeah, in terms of the barbecue competition circuit, I think it's a function of, of cost. Um, sure. Cause what you see is like, uh, you don't see a lot of African-Americans on these competition circuits, but when there is a city or community level barbecue that has either a free entry or low entry cost, African-Americans are all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really just a function of cost. Right. Yeah. Because at the, that really is, it really is an expensive hobby, I guess, to, uh, to pull your trailer around to different places to do to do barbecue right because not only do you have to pay for the trailer which is you know thousands of dollars in the cooking rig which sometimes can be as much as what five to ten thousand dollars you've got to have a job that allows you to do that and you know if you only have two weeks vacation time which is the situation i think for a lot of people you know how much of that are you going to use competing at barbecue circuits rather than spending that with your family or going someplace else so right yeah so when is that book uh, scheduled to be released? So right now it is scheduled to be released May of 2021. So roughly okay, a so year got, from now. Yeah, we've got about a year. We'll have to we'll have to have you back on to talk about that maybe in more depth uh, at the time. But I believe that you also are making a barbecue appearance on Vivian Howard's new show. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to her new show. Uh, South by Southern, I think, is the name of it. Uh. I, Somewhere south. Somewhere I south. Think. Okay. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think they've changed the name okay. uh, a little bit gotcha. during the production of it. But yeah, it's uh, and of course Vivian Howard has has appeared on this show because uh, she she actually comes to Kentucky for her pickle episode, uh, but you appeared on her barbecue episode. Yeah. So she was gracious enough to invite me uh, to North Carolina to just explore North Carolina barbecue. So we we went to places like the Skylight Inn. Uh, we went to a Saturday only kind of whole hog cooking place uh, and another place that uh, features turkey barbecue, which is a really strong trend in African-American barbecue. Interesting. I don't know that I've had turkey barbecue. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of barbecue joints offer turkey breast as a healthy, quote unquote, option. But mm-hmm. what you're seeing in African-American circles is essentially taking turkey and um essentially making it look like pork preparations. So you're seeing like turkey ribs, pulled turkey, chopped turkey. Uh, It's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. What did you, what, what's your assessment of North Carolina barbecue? You're, you're speaking to a Kentucky audience, so you can say whatever you want. You You know what? I actually (laughs) like, I actually like North Carolina barbecue. Um, And it's not something I would necessarily seek out right away. But when you, when you get North Carolina barbecue prepared the right way the vinegar is not that strong it actually uh, enhances the taste of the pork and so uh to get that wood scented pork and then that that kind of vinegar hit with a kick of cayenne man it's just it's some good eating and i i think the problem is why a lot of people have an attitude about north carolina barbecue is that there's a lot of crappy north carolina barbecue being made 
where sure yeah. well that's true for a lot of barbecue i think yeah yeah and what irks me the most is you know uh, the trend in a lot of restaurants now is to prepare their meat one way and then have an array of sauces on the table to customize it to a certain right. region and that is not that is not north carolina barbecue north carolina barbecue right. you are sopping that vinegar throughout the cooking process mm-hmm. uh so anyway this is just one of my pet peeves Right. It's it's built in. You can't separate it out. Yeah, exactly. Well, of all the barbecues that you've tried, what's your favorite? What's your favorite style? Oh, Kansas City. I'm a Kansas City okay. guy. I I will have to say the I, I really loved the meats in Kansas City and and you found a lot of a pretty wide variety of meats uh, that were barbecued there. For me, their standard sauce tends to be a little sweeter than I prefer. Yeah. Uh, I really love the sauce from, uh, say, uh, a dreamland mm-hmm. in Alabama. Mm-hmm. That And and I will say, I also think that the white sauce in northern Alabama is is a little underrated. I'm, I'm a big fan of it, too. Okay. Yeah, so I like the sweetness um, of Kansas City sauce, so... My, my top three regional styles, I would say, are uh, Kansas City first, then Memphis second, and then Central Texas third. I will admit that my knowledge of Texas barbecue is, is, a, is a vast void. I have, I have a fair amount of experience with Kansas City, Memphis, and then areas like Alabama. But uh, I just, with Texas, I just don't have the... I don't have the experience to speak to it. You know what? I got to tell you, I'm shocked because I, I just thought for sure that there would probably be a bunch of Texas-style places in Lexington now because as I go around the country, I mean, most of the new places that are opening are Texas, Central Texas-style. Well, I, I guess I'll what I'll say is I've not been uh, to, to Texas barbecue places in Texas enough oh. to speak. I'm always a little skeptical of you know, fill in the blank style places in other places. Gotcha. So if I get, I guess I feel like if I want Kansas city style barbecue, I need to be in Kansas city to get it. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> and, and the same with Memphis or whatever. Um, so I, sure. I mean, I, I love brisket and, uh, when it, when it's fixed well, and that's really, uh, the, I guess sort of the, the basis of, of a lot of Texas barbecue, but, uh, I have not spent enough time in Texas touring barbecue places. I am certainly willing to do it. I'm not, uh, it's just a matter of, of getting there and doing it, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. This is Vivian Howard, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Tell me about some of your your early years working at the Clinton White House. That's uh, that's an unusual backstory for somebody who's now uh, a culinary historian. Yeah, so uh, I got that job the old-fashioned way. I knew somebody who was already working there. <laughs> Great. Well, it's a political job, of course. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> a friend of mine from Georgetown Law School called me up out of the blue, and she was uh, working at something called the Initiative for One America in uh, President Clinton's White House. So uh, the Initiative for One America was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race. And the whole idea was that if we just talk to one another and listen, we'd probably realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So the Initiative on Race went on for about two years. And when that was completed, the people who ran that said, Mr. President, you need to have an ongoing office in the White House 
to deal with racial, ethnic, and religious reconciliation. So that became the initiative for One America. So my friend gotcha. called me up. I was practicing law in, in Denver, and uh, I was not enjoying it. In fact, what I tell people is it, it was so bad that it got to the point that I was singing spirituals in my office. <laughs> and uh, white people were joining in, so that tells you how bad it was. So um, she asked me if I had friends back in Washington, D.C., who might be interested in the job. And I, when I asked her to tell me more about the job, I basically did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee, and only my name went on the list. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's a good way to do it, I yeah. think. So it was great. Um, so I was at I worked in the White House um, the very last, basically, 16 months of President Clinton's uh, second term. So uh, our we didn't have a lot of money to work with. So our approach was to essentially ask people, invite people to come to the White House and talk to us about what they were doing in their sector to enhance diversity and reconciliation. So we had a big meeting with faith leaders. Then we had another big meeting with uh, Fortune 500 corporate leadership. Mm -hmm. And we were going to do a media summit, but then um, that was going to be in the summer just before of Clinton's last term of last year in office. But um, President Clinton decided to devote most of his energy to uh, to the uh, Middle East peace, peace process between the Palestinians and uh, Israel. And so that was the main focus of uh, his last uh, several months in office. So uh, all of our gotcha. stuff got kind of pushed to the side. So um, di did you get to spend a lot of time you know, going out and having beers with the president or anything like that? <laughs> no, I didn't get to see him that much. So uh, I only saw him a few times and briefed him a couple times on some issues. Um, he saw my boss a lot more than he saw me. I was kind of the number two in the office by the time we sure. got to the end. But uh, yeah, I didn't get to see him that much. And in fact, when I saw him, and it's, this is a little bit of a sore point, but most people who have met Bill Clinton will tell you that he made them feel like he, they were the only person in the room. I never really got that. <laughs> I always had to remind him who I was. <laughs> well, that, that's probably uh, he probably thought he he had your vote already locked up since you were since you were working there. But. Yeah, he, he was right about that, but still, <laughs> uh, sure. I I would think though that that would be uh, just an extraordinary time to have that kind of access to be just to be in the White House as uh, as somebody who's supposed to be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was a great time, um, and you know the honor of just walking into that complex, uh, and I fully did not understand the history of the place. Um, you know, I'd learned about it, but uh, you, you knew you were in a special place. But uh, of course, I got the idea for the White House cookbook, uh, book about the White House cooks after I worked in the White House. Sure, that's that's the way it always goes. I know, man. I could have gotten so much scoop. <laughs> sure, you would have been just just sort of hide behind the the pans on the side, and you could have you could have witnessed history. Yeah, because I had top secret clearance at that time, so I could actually have done that if I wanted to. Oh, very nice, very nice. Well, in, in a lot of ways, though, uh, the work you've done with your books and uh, with uh, examining African American culinary history is is really kind of a continuation of, of what you were doing there, I, I feel like. Yeah, in many ways, I'm, uh, you know, we, we live in challenging times, and I think there's a lot of division. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is, like, how can, how can food bring us together? Um, and uh, how can food 
include history be a way to show, illuminate the ways that we were together in the past as maybe a model for what we can do as a shared future? Sure, absolutely. I, uh, I think you're doing great work, and I hope, just speaking to the times that we're in right now, uh, that a lot of, of these businesses that you've investigated, uh, a lot of the, not, you know, all, all of our restaurants and eateries are going to be challenged, but I know a lot of, uh, of minority-owned restaurants are, are going to be as well, and I hope that they're able to, to make it through this. I do too. Um, you know, I was thinking though, a lot of soul food joints were takeout only anyway. So, um, you know, they may, they may have a chance. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of built for this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's just low capitalization. They really just couldn't invest in having and maintaining a dining room. So, right. um, but yeah, it's going to be a challenging time. So my heart goes out to all of these entrepreneurs and, um, I just hope that our society does right by them and supports them. Yeah, I, I do too. There are a lot of, a lot of places that just, you know, well, here in Kentucky, every, everywhere has been shut down by order of the governor and it's, it's takeout only. And, uh, it's a necessary thing, but it's, uh, I know there's a lot of, uh, of concern and, and quite frankly, some of these places just aren't going to make it. And that's really sad. Yeah. 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 That's the reality. They're just not going to make it. Well, I appreciate you being on Eat Kentucky, and uh, I hope maybe we can get together again in a year or so, and we can explore barbecue maybe a little bit more. That sounds great, because uh, there, there are actually some barbecue figures um, that I talk about in that book, uh, So, and I, I and from Kentucky. So, uh, oh, yeah. Fantastic. Well, that sounds right up our alley, then. Yeah. We, <laughs> we'd love to talk to you about it. Well, thank you very much, and we will, uh, we will be... Uh, in touch about that. And uh, I'll also have links and show notes to your social media and to, uh, and to your books. All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being on. All right. Peace. You can find links to Adrian Miller's website and social media and show notes and also information about his books. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes. And please leave a five-star rating really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky, where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.